0: As Justin said, my name is Nick Van Horn, and I'm actually just gonna jump right in because there's a lot here, and I promised Justin that I'd keep it to just under two hours. So, amen, yeah, thank you. Glad you all realized that's a joke. All right, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start off with a little story to kind of introduce things, and it's gonna be the story of how I got my glasses, or when I realized that I needed glasses. Uh, I didn't actually start wearing these until I was about halfway through my senior year in college. And I remember I was in a, a class where that was an auditorium-style seating with one of my housemates. And he and I were sitting towards the back, and the professor was writing something up on the board, and for the first time, I couldn't see it. And so I looked at my, my housemate, Mark, I was like, Mark, can, can you read what she's writing? He goes, yeah. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> and so sure enough, I was driving home for Christmas break, and my brother was a freshman uh, at the time. And so he and I were driving together, and I was talking to him about this, and I said, Josh, you know, I'm really worried. I might need some glasses. Let's test this out. So way down the road, there's a, an exit sign. When you can read it, say now. And then when I can read it, I'll say now. And how much time has elapsed between that? We'll know how bad it is. And so he's like, okay. And so he goes, okay, now. And I go, now. And he's like, should I drive? And... Uh, So I said no, but um, so why do I bring this up all right? It's because in this chapter here in uh, 2nd Samuel 7, so where we are today Two themes come together and those two themes uh, come together in such a way that when we look through them like corrective lenses or clarifying lenses They can help open up and help us see the Bible more clearly and also see the person of Jesus more clearly and the first of those themes, uh, if you've been with us uh, since we started 2 Samuel, the first of those themes is King David, so we're learning a lot about King David. David gets more airtime in the Old Testament than any other person. He's very soon, even even more than Moses. And so and when we look at him in the New Testament even, think about all the times that we hear about the son of David, the throne of David, the kingdom of David. He's mentioned so often that he's actually listed in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of our New Testament, in Matthew, where it says, the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So he's pretty significant. And the second of the themes is that of covenant. And I'm going to get into that in just a little bit here. But these two things come together in such a way that uh, theologians believe that 2 Samuel 7 is the most important chapter In all the Old Testament it's the climax of the Old Testament and uh, if not one of the most important chapters in all the Bible which may have you asking the same question why on earth is Justin letting me preach this (laughs) right Uh, trusting in the Holy Spirit I guess so Tim Chester uh, on this he's a uh, pastor and a commentator in his commentary on 2nd Samuel says not only is 2nd Samuel the most important chapter in 1st and 2nd Samuel It's one of the most important uh, chapters in the entire Bible. This chapter is, as it were, vital structural span. excuse me, I'm lifting this up, on the bridge linking the promise of a Savior to Adam with the coming of the Savior in Jesus. So what happens in this chapter is alluded to either explicitly or implicitly all over the pages of the Bible. The words spoken by God in this chapter are still shaping human history. So where are we going to go today? Uh, Give you a little advance Uh, First we're going to talk about the context of covenant because covenants are something we're not terribly familiar with in today's day and age The closest we come to is is in a wedding ceremony And there's some elements there that we may not even realize are covenantal in that And so if for us to feel the real weight of what's happening in this chapter We have to have a little bit of a historical and biblical context for covenants Then we're going to dive into the chapter and it's broken up into three sections The first is David's desire to build a house for God God desires to build a house for David, and then David's response to God. So let's, uh, let's open up in some short prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all my brothers and sisters here today. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would speak and comfort uh, us here. And Lord, that whatever is not of you would just fade away, uh, but what is of you, Lord, would stick in our hearts and minds as we uh, go out. Uh, to serve. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Alright, so so covenant. Like I said, covenants are something we're not terribly familiar with. Wedding is probably the, the closest thing we come to. And so uh, first we'll, we'll look at the parties uh, of a covenant. Um, actually, I, I apologize. Uh, i jumping ahead. Um, it's actually really difficult to overstate how important covenants are in the, in the Old Testament and in our relationship with God. Um, o. Palmer Robertson, who is a theologian and uh, writer, says in his book, The Christ of the Covenants, from creation to consummation, the covenantal bond has determined the relations of God to his people. The extent of the divine covenants reaches from the beginning of the world to the end of the age. There is not a single aspect of our relationship with God that is not in some way defined by or carried by A covenant. And it's, when we look at the themes of the Bible, all the various themes, there, there are a whole lot of different things going on. Uh, covenants are the things that hold them together. So when we think about uh, even the, the arc of Scripture, creation, fall, uh, redemption, consummation, these various themes are linked and held together by covenants. Uh, Michael Horton, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, writes, uh, what unites them, these various themes that we find in Scripture, is not itself a central dogma, but a matrix of beams and pillars that hold together the structure of biblical faith and practice. That particular architectural structure that we believe the Scriptures themselves to yield is the covenant. It's not simply the concept of covenant, but the concrete existence of God's covenantal dealings in our history that provides the context within which we recognize the unity of Scripture amid its remarkable variety. So everything in Scripture is tied together by the covenants that God has established with his people. And so, now, what's, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a form of ancient Near Eastern uh, treaty or pact. And there are typically two parties to a covenant in the ancient Near East. And so the first was a, called a suzerain, or sort of a high king. And uh, often what would happen is this high king would go to a smaller neighboring nation, and rather than say, hey, we're going to go to war and I'm going to kill you and take over, He would enter into a covenant with the lesser king called a vassal, and uh, that would prevent war, but what the the vassal was promising was faithfulness to this, this greater king in exchange for protection, right? And the vassal, all the responsibilities of the covenant fell upon the vassal, and the vassal would also make the covenant on behalf of his people as the representative head of his people. Okay. And then, uh, what are the, what's the content of the covenant? What were the, the, the parts of the covenant? Well, first, uh, we have the, the vows and stipulations. And actually, it's important that I point out, not every, uh, not every single one of these elements that I'm going to cover here are found in every single covenant, and this is not an exhaustive list. These are the key components that we regularly find uh, in the Scriptures uh, as, as part of covenants. But first is the bound stipulations, the promise that the vassal would make to the greater king, uh, the things that he would promise to do. Then we have the blessings and the rewards, the good things that would come about from covenant faithfulness for the vassal and his people. Then we have the curses or the sanctions, the bad things that would happen if they broke covenant faithfulness. Um, and then we have the ceremony. And the ceremony was one of the most important parts And it was a a cutting ceremony. It's going to seem pretty gross to us today, but often what would happen is uh, the suzerain would require that the vassal king would slaughter an animal, cut it in half, like I said, gross, uh, and then he would set the pieces of the animal on either side, and the suzerain would make the vassal king walk between the pieces. Now you got to remember, this is not an age of pen and paper. Right? This is an age of, um, of sign and um, symbolism. So they, they couldn't document this and pass out papers to everybody. And so what the vassal would do in this, or what he was enacting out, was the covenant curses that would fall upon him and his people should he fail to keep covenant faithfulness. In other words, the suzerain would cut him in half and walk between the pieces. Amazing. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, this, this cutting ceremony was so intricately tied into the making of a covenant that they would use the phrase, cut a covenant. Uh, and often we, we read in Scripture and other ancient Near Eastern texts that even the verb cut, the, the Hebrew verb karat, to cut, would be used to, uh, by itself without covenant, be used to uh, indicate the, the establishment of a covenant. And so when we kind of tie this back to weddings, right? we, we have the vows, Right, um, the the blessings I think are implied, the curses implied. Uh, then we have the sign, uh, and uh, I th- I think I forgot to mention uh, the the meal of the covenant, the sign and the meal. So there's a, a sign of the covenant uh, that would be a token that would be given to uh, the vassal and the suzerain that every time they would see it they would remember the covenant that was made, and then often they would share a meal together to ratify the establishment of the covenant. And so um, meals represented uh, a lot more then than they, did to, than they do today. It was to sit and have a meal with someone was to ha- have political or social alliance with them, and so that was often how they ratified covenants. So anyway, we have uh, uh, the sign of the covenant for the, the ring, and then we have the meal of the covenant where the two families come together in a wedding, uh, share a meal together, symbolizing the, the coming of the two families into one. And then for our wedding, we had a cutting ceremony where after we cut the cake, Jen made me walk between the pieces. <laughs> And just so you know, I find that joke a lot funnier than she does. Um, but you're surprised there, right? All right, so that's, that's the historical context. What about the biblical context of covenants? All right, well, there is one overarching goal that God is trying to reach and we, that we read in Scripture that he's moving all history toward this end, and that is the end of him creating a people for himself that he will dwell with, being their God and, him, uh, and them being His people. He's creating a people for himself to dwell with. And everything that God does is driving toward that end. And the median of Him, uh, the medium of him can completing that is covenant. That's the mode in which he, he completes this task. And so while we see a lot of different covenants throughout Scripture, there are some primary ones I want to cover to give you context. And these covenants are not individually standing on their own. They're progressive. They're moving toward a goal. They're, they're building upon one another. And so the first one that we see is the covenant of creation, or what Jeremiah refers to as the covenant of night and day. And in this covenant, God is creating an existence for his people. Now, this the, the creation account stands in stark contrast to the surrounding nations, the deities of the surrounding nations. It's the covenant of night and day because there are regular patterns. There's, there's peace. There's order. In the place that God has created for his people to exist. Next, we have the, uh, the Adamic covenant, and that comes in two parts. The first is uh, referred to as the Edenic Eden uh, covenant, the covenant before the fall, where God has placed uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives them the cultural mandate. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, create culture. He gives his people something to do. He gives his people purpose, and he places them in a place of relationship with him, Uh, And he gives them uh, the stipulation you may eat of any tree, uh, the vow of any tree except the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil and the curse, the day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, And then we have the the post-fall Adamic covenant where God's uh, newly fallen people, God slaughters an animal, creates skins that he uses to cover the nakedness of his people, and in it he embeds the promise that one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Okay. Then we have the Noahic covenant, where God is reaffirming his, his a creation covenant. He's uh, wiped the earth clean of evil, starting over with Noah, and he sets his bow in the sky as the sign of his covenant. Then we move on to the Abrahamic covenant, where God establishes the covenant with Abraham, saying, Abraham, your seed will outnumber the stars of the heaven and I will give you a land in which to dwell and your seed is going to be a blessing to all the nations. And then uh, the Mosaic Covenant, God rescues his people from slavery. He establishes a law for them and this law is given so that it might separate them from the surrounding nations. When the people of Israel live out the law that God has given them, they stand as a light to the nations to show what the God of Israel is like. And then finally, uh, here for our purposes, uh, we have the Davidic Covenant where God promises a king to rule over his people. He's given them a place to live, a people to, uh, to be his own, a law that governs them, and then a king to rule over them. And that's what leads us, uh, leads us to, to where we are today. So let's, let's jump into the text. Excuse me, I'm going to take a little drink here. So the first part is uh, 2 Samuel 7, verses one through three. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. All right, so if you haven't been tracking with us uh, through, throughout 2 Samuel, I'll give you just a quick recap of what's happened that's led us to this point. First, anybody who was seeking David's life Saul, in particular, is now dead. Any rival that David had to the throne is either dead or has bent the knee to him. He's united the the nation of Israel into one that had had split, and uh, he's set up his capital in Jerusalem. He's built himself a palace, and most importantly, he's brought the Ark of the Covenant back into his capital and set it in the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant, there's a word covenant, represents God's presence to his people all right so things are going really well for David and so he's sitting in this palace and he's thinking to himself you know what it's not right that I'm sitting in a beautiful palace made of, of cedar Cedars sort of like the subway tile back then you know, it's, the, it's the, the fancy stuff that you would build with um, and it, but it's not right that the the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in a tent you got to remember this tent was the same tent that Moses and Aaron built. It's over 300 years old, and I don't know about you, but I, I've been camping in a tent that's you know over 10 years old, and it's pretty funky, right? This is 300 years old. It's got to be ratty and nasty from all the incense, all the travel, all the setup, all the put, uh, uh, putting away. Uh, and so he gets it in his head, and he alludes to it. He doesn't actually say it, so he goes to his pastor of the day, Nathan. says, Nathan, this isn't right. And Nathan sees where he's going. He's like, oh, Okay. You know, Nathan's a prophet, works in a temple. might be kind of nice to have a new building. He goes, go and do all this within your heart, for the Lord is with you, right? He didn't even ask God. Neither of them do, right? And so, and so what, what do we see? What, what happens next? I'm going to read this next chunk, and then we're, uh, I'll jump into it here. So 4 through 17. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying why have you not built me a house of cedar now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David thus says the Lord of hosts I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over your over my people Israel and I have been with you wherever you went have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them no more, uh, anymore as formerly. And uh, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, So there's a lot going on here. But what's the first thing that, that we notice in this? Is that after David intends to build a house, God comes back to David and says, No, David, I don't need a house. Now, David and Nathan's jaws would have dropped at this. Right? It doesn't strike us as particularly odd. Uh, I, I alluded to this before, but a lot of what's written in the Old Testament is written to show what the God of, how the God of Israel stands in contrast to the, God of the gods of the nations around them. And what the, the people who worship the gods of the, uh, the deities of the other nations had to do is they had to do ever more elaborate and outstanding things just to get the attention of that God. And one of those things was building temples, building houses for these gods, The bigger, the more grandiose, the more likely they were to get the attention of that God and be blessed by Him. But not the God of Israel. Why? Because the people of Israel, the people of God, don't need to get His attention. His attention is always with them. He can't get His people off His mind. He can't get you off of His mind. When His people wandered in the desert, God wandered with them. When they dwelt in tents, God dwelt in a tent. He doesn't need a house. His goal, like I said, is to be with his people. Next, in verses 7, 8, through the first part of 9, we see that God humbles David. And it might seem, at first, like God's trying to knock David down a couple of notches. Like, what's going on, God? It's kind of harsh, right? Right? But what what he's doing is he's actually protecting David. And in protecting David, he's also protecting uh, the people that David leads. Why is that? What's the biggest threat to anybody in power over other people? It's that they become prideful. As goes the king, so go the people of God. He's reminding David, David, remember where you came from. You were a, a shepherd, tracking in sheep dung. You were the least son of Jesse. When I sent Samuel out to anoint a king, he went to Jesse, and Jesse gathered all his sons except you. You are where you are today because I'm good. Don't forget that. So I'm protecting David from the sin of pride, he's protecting also his people from falling. Next we get into the covenant here. Uh, seven, uh, the second part of seven, nine, the rest. And like I said, there's a lot happening here, so I'm going to try and, and break it out here. So then, in verse nine, God begins the transition in this. He transitions from what he uh, has done for David to what he will do for, uh, for David. And he's going to make a great name for him. Now, I already sort of touched on that at the beginning, so I, I won't hit on that anymore. It's obvious that God followed through on that promise. David's name is great. Even people who don't go to church know about King David. Uh, And then in verse uh, 10 through 11, seemingly out of nowhere, he inserts this promise about planting his people in the land. How does that flow with the rest of this? Well, it's because the success of the people and their faithfulness to God in ancient Israel is, is often measured by whether or not they're dwelling in the land that God has given them. When the king is faithless and the people follow suit, they're removed from the land. This is the land that God promised Abraham as part of the covenant that he established. And so, so long as they remain faithful, they will dwell in the land. So this is a measure of their success. He's saying, I will plant you in this land. And so the land is also tied to the faithfulness of the king. And then, verses 12 through 17, he moves into this promise to David where he says he's going to build a house for David. First, I just want you to feel the sheer weight of grace that's in this. David says, I want to build a house for God. God, I want to do something for you. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. God serves his people. He doesn't need them to serve him. And so God uses a play on words here. He said, I will build you a house. Now, David's already sitting in a house of cedar. So what's he mean? He means a lineage, a kingship, a throne for David that his line will stay in forever. And God uses some, uh, some specific words here. The, the word that the ESV here translates as offspring is the Hebrew word zerah, and it means seed. And uh, this, this would have brought David and Nathan's minds directly to the two previous covenants. First would have been the, the covenant God established with Abraham, where God said, Abraham's seed is gonna outnumber the earth, and Abraham's seed is gonna be a blessing to the nations. Well, in saying this, and using the word seed for David's uh, kingship, He's saying that, David, your seed is going to be the one who rules over the seed of Abraham. And then second, the second time we see the word seed used in a covenant is back in the garden after the fall, where God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so God is saying, David, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Then he says, uh, David's seed will be the one to build God's house. And I'll come to ba- that, back to that in just a moment. And then finally, God uh, says he will establish uh, David's seed's throne forever, David's throne forever. And he uses the word forever three times there. And three, and the number three has significance in ancient Israel. It was a number of completion, of wholeness. And so what God is saying there is, as surely as I am God, I will do this. When I say forever, I mean forever. But any of you who who are familiar with the story might know that there's a problem. Sure enough, uh, David's son, Solomon, does come to the throne, sits on his father's throne, and uh, Solomon does indeed build a house for God, and he leads Israel to the height of its glory. It's the jewel of the nations. People come from all over the world to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon, to see the splendor of the temple that he's built. But it doesn't even make it one generation after David before the wheels come off. As I said, uh, as goes the king, so go the people of God. Well, Solomon began to lust after the gods of his wives. And he led his people Israel with him in this idolatry. And so what happens? The nation of Israel split up and then we see uh, faithless king after faithless king after faithless king come into power. A couple bright spots in there, but on the whole, bad kings who uh, chase after the nations and how they do things. And so what eventually ends up happening is the people of God are, are removed from their land, the temple is destroyed, and the people of Israel are left thinking, God, didn't you say forever? I thought you said forever. And so looking back on this uh, in his in his prophecy, Isaiah came to a realization. It's a a, a verse we're all going to be familiar with. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, we read it at Christmas. Uh, It's, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What Isaiah realized, what God told Isaiah is that there, if there is to be a truly faithful king that will always lead God's people into the worship of God, into the presence of God, that king would have to be God himself. And this is why uh, we see embedded within every single one of the covenants the shadow of Jesus. What, what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians one twenty was that for all the promises of God, find their yes in Jesus. And what are the promises of God but the covenants? right? So let's go back. Let's take a look at this. When we look at the creation account, who is Jesus but the Word of God? God created by His Word. Jesus is the Word of God. As we read in John 1.1, 1, 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Paul, reiterating upon this in Romans and Colossians, says, For from him and through him and to him, Jesus, are all things. And in him all things hold together. Then let's take a look at the the Adamic covenant, the Edenic covenant. Who is Jesus but the tree of life? When we abide in him, when we take of him and eat, it's what we're representing in, uh, in the Lord's Supper. We take of him, we eat, we have eternal life. We remain in the presence of God. And then, after the fall, who is Jesus but the animal that was slain by God's own hand? The, the, God's people had made fig leaves, uh, coverings of fig leaves, but God made them a covering that was better. He used the slain animal to make skins, a better covering than they could make for themselves. And then who is Jesus but the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent? The serpent is the one who brought sin and death and separation from God, and Jesus is the one who reverses that curse. He brings life and connection with God. And then when we look in the Noahic covenant, after the uh, the fall, the Noahic covenant, who is Jesus but the better ark? that brings us through the waters of God's wrath into God's presence. And when God set his bow in the sky, that bow was aimed toward heaven. And God knew that one day he was going to release that arrow that would strike his son in the side, out from which would pour the blood and water that lead to our life. And then in the Abrahamic covenant, I want you to notice one thing. Uh, the, The cutting ceremony took place there, but it wasn't Abraham that walked between the pieces. It was God Himself. God did not make His servant do it. God said, I will call the covenant curses upon myself if I fail in my, faith, in my faithfulness to this covenant I'm making with you. And you know what? He did call those covenant curses upon Himself, not for His faithfulness, faithlessness, but for ours and who is jesus but the seed of abraham that is a blessing to all the nations for god's calling not just one people to himself but people from every tribe tongue and nation to come together under one roof to worship him and then when we look at the mosaic covenant god is the better moses or jesus is the better moses the one who frees us not just from political servitude political slavery but who frees us from slavery to sin and death and jesus is the one who the only one who obeyed the law perfectly. The law was given to us as a sign to show us our need for Jesus. We couldn't keep it perfectly. As, as the, the writer in Hebrews says, for the blood of goats and bulls was not sufficient to atone for their sin, but the blood of Jesus was a, a sufficient once for all. One sacrifice done for everybody. And then finally here, here in this Davidic covenant, Jesus is the long-awaited promised king. The one who faithfully leads his people to God. The one who faithfully builds the house for God. Not a house made from brick and stone and mortar that can be torn down by human hands, but a a house that is made of the hearts and souls of God's people. A house that can stand forever. So that he he is a better David. He leads his people not only uh, uh, into dwelling with God, but God through Jesus dwells in his people. We sang earlier uh, about this, uh, about how the veil was torn. We read this in Matthew 27, 51. Uh, it talks about the veil uh, of the temple. The, and uh, the veil was the, the curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the presence of God. And we are told that in the hour of Jesus' death, that, uh, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And what we often hear is, you know, that, that now means that everybody has access to God. And that's true. But more than that, what that meant is that God left the temple. He's not there anymore. He's in his new temple. He's with us. So, what's our response to this? Uh, And we'll we'll get that from David's response here. Uh, Just because of time, I'm not going to read the verse there. Uh, You can read it, I think it'll be up here on the next slide, or if you've got your Bibles, it's uh, verses 18 through uh, 29. But what is it that we can learn from David's response to this promise? And the first I would say is that uh, we see in verses 18 and 23 that David remembers God's faithfulness. One of the most consistent commands that we read in Scripture is to remember. Why? Because... As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts are prone to forget the goodness of God. So, uh, God has established some things that help us remember the sign and the meal of the covenant. In the Old Testament, the sign was circumcision. The meal was the Passover, but today, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Uh, this is why when um, Jesus established baptism, we often like to think of baptism as our declaration to God and to to the world what we believe and who we are. And it can certainly be that. I don't want to knock that. That's that's a good thing. But more than that is is us remembering what God has done for us. We are enacting in the way uh, of the covenants that dying to ourselves, the raising in life, the washing, of our sins from us in the blood of Jesus. And then what is it? Uh, uh, what is Jesus' uh, command when he instituted the Lord's Supper? Uh, Paul of this writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup uh, after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood." Excuse me. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. When we uh, when we live out the sacraments, we are again calling that grace of God down on us. That's why the reformers referred to the uh, the, the sacraments as the means of grace. We are experiencing that grace of God again, and reminding ourselves of it. Second thing I want to point out that David does is David sits. Read in verse 18 there, David sat before the Lord. Now, the, the, the word for sit in Hebrew is yeshav, and it has dual meaning. It means to sit, or it means to dwell, to live in. And that's also the verb that we see used in verse 1. And I think what the writer of 2 Samuel 7 is doing is making a comparison of the two times that David sits. The first time David sat, it was in order to think about what he could do for God, how he could be of benefit to God. But as God told him, I don't need anything, David. You don't need to, you can't add anything to me. But the second time David sits, it's an awestruck wonder of what God has done for him. Now, I don't want to say we we can't serve God. We absolutely are called to serve God. But how we approach that can be very different. We can approach it the first way David does, where he's thinking he's a benefactor to God. Or we can do it the second way, David sits, is realizing how much our God has served us. And then we go out in gratitude. And then finally... David trusts God. Verse 28, he says God's words are truth. Covenants are promises. God is incapable of breaking his promises. And I, I don't know where you're coming from today, what, what it is that's brought you here. If you've been a Christian for a long time, but maybe you're in a place where you're asking like the Israelites did, God, I thought you said forever. I thought you you said this good, you had good things for me. I want you to know you can trust God. And then also, maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm not sure where I stand on this whole God thing or this whole Jesus thing. I want you to know you can trust God. How do I know? It's because God gave His Son for you. There there was a quote that I missed uh, that I kind of blew through. But it was the definition uh, that O. Palmer Robertson gives to a covenant, and that definition is, it's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. You know how you can trust God? Because he has bound himself to you in the blood of his son. Well, let's close in prayer here as the, the band comes back up. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, that you yourself walked between the pieces of the animal. Lord, that you sent your son for us. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here to go out and serve, Lord, it wouldn't be from a heart of a duty, but a heart of gratitude that's thankful for all the ways that you serve us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.